Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another United States Studies Center webinar. Um, and as we would do if this were an in-person event, we would begin by acknowledging that the University of Sydney, where the United States Studies Center physically sits, uh, is on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Uh, good morning again. And, and today, again, we're so thrilled that this technology gives us an opportunity to converse with friends and supporters of, of the center and of the Australia-US relationship more broadly, uh, who are in the United States. Um, and today, we're so thrilled to be joined by Ambassador John Berry, who is president of the American Australian Association and, of course, former US ambassador to Australia. Uh, John, um, I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with both in his ambassadorial role when he was here in Australia and now as um, running the AAA there in New York. But John served as the uh, 25th US ambassador to Australia, uh, a, a, an appointment of President Obama uh, from 2013 to 2016. And prior to that, John had a long and distinguished career uh, serving uh, the US government. Uh, in three positions requiring Senate confirmation, and all three of those were unanimous confirmations, including a role that we'll, we'll touch on a little bit later in our conversation this morning. Uh, John served as director of the Office of Personal Management. And for those of you that know your US government, that's a big, big job uh, in the executive branch, essentially the head of HR for the entire US government. Um, he was, uh, had a COO-like role at the Department of Interior, again, a, a very big part of the US government. Um, and he was legislative director uh, uh, for Steny Hoyer up, up, up on Capitol Hill. He's had roles in the nonprofit sector, including one time a fabulously diverse career John's had. He served as the director of the, of the National Zoo. And again, if you know your way around DC, no trip to DC is complete without a visit to that amazing institution. Um, John has also accomplished many firsts in his career. And, and most notably, he was the first openly uh, LGBT ambassador to a G20 country. And, and in that time at OPM, at, at that time, that was the highest ranking uh, position uh, uh, for an LGBT person in, in, in American history. And so John, sort of a pathbreaker uh, in, his, uh, in his government service role, was an enormously effective, important ambassador to Australia at a time where the US-Australia relationship was coming under a little bit of pressure through sort of interesting developments out here in the Indo-Pacific. We might touch on those tangentially today, but not really our main focus today, of course. I, I'm, I'm here today to really talk with John and, and with you all um, about the way COVID-19 is playing out in the United States. And, and John, good morning to you, or good evening. Good, uh, good morning, Simon, and welcome, and thanks for everyone for uh, tuning in to hear us chat. That's terrific. And again, it's evening there in New York. I, I'm, I'm so grateful for your time. And, and also under the circumstances, John, had a visit to the dentist that he could not defer, one of those visits uh, earlier today, New York time. So, and, and especially grateful, John, for your, for your uh, soldiering up here. And, um, but typical of what we'd expect from you, your uh, dedication to the Australian <laughs> relationship. Well, Simon, just, just know if I slur a word or two, it's, it's the, uh, it's the uh, Novocaine wear, not wearing off entirely yet. It's definitely not an early cocktail. <laughs> Uh, well done. Well done. Yeah. Very different end of the day here, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, you know, I'm afraid, look, it's serious business that, um, that we want to sort of turn to. Um, I want to begin um, with your lived experience on the ground there, John. You're right there in downtown New York City. Um, you know New York so well. You, from your time as ambassador, you know Australia so well. I'm wondering if you could use that experience to help this largely Australian audience today. Give us a sense of, of what it's like there on the ground at the moment in New York. And well, th think Australians might want to be particularly made aware of. 
Well, and I know there's a lot of Australians that live here and, and uh, certainly even more visited. So uh, it's an honor to represent the city uh, today and talk a little bit about this. Um, you know, I think I've been thinking about this, uh, Simon, I am struck by sort of Dickens' uh, tale of two cities beginning. Uh, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Um, you know, here in New York, it's uh, northern spring. And so, uh, and in fact, it's been a chilly spring. And so the flowering trees have lasted much longer than they normally would. Cherry trees have held their petals for, you know, almost two weeks. Um, you know, it's, it's been a beautiful, beautiful spring. Um, and so in the morning, I walking my dog and uh, through City Hall Park, where uh, right where, if, if for you who have visited New York, it's right where the Brooklyn Bridge comes into Manhattan. There's a little triangular park there that City Hall is, is built on and made famous because during the American Revolution, um, one of our great heroes of the American Revolution, Nathan Hale, uh, was executed there by the British, hung, and his, his stirring last words were, uh, I regret, but I have but one life to give for my country. And his statue is there. So I walk by that every morning. I walk by looking at the Brooklyn Bridge and the beauty of spring and, you know, the best of times. And I walk around the block of Pace University, and uh, we have a hospital uh, next to Pace University. It's the only hospital in Lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, as I turn the corner, there is a large white tractor trailer truck um, that is being used as a temporary mortuary because uh, there is not enough places to hold the bodies uh, that have passed away. Um, and so you have this incredible dynamic of sort of that you're, you're living through. I thought the other way to put this in context, because sometimes numbers can be numbing. Yeah. Uh, and I tried to think of how would I convey this? And as many people refer to this as we're in a battle, we're in war. And I thought, how would I convey this? And I thought, the bloodiest single day in U.S. history uh, was the battle at Antietam during the Civil War. Uh, it was a Union victory. It was so important. It allowed the first victory, really, for the Union cause. And the most important thing that happened from it is Lincoln was able to issue the Emancipation Proclamation from a position of strength and not weakness by winning that battle. But 3,600 people died in one day on both sides, Confederate and, and Union. But if you take all the people who have died at Antietam, U.S. citizens, all the Americans killed at Pearl Harbor, all the Americans killed at Guadalcanal, at Iwo Jima, at Normandy, the entire Iraq war, the entire Afghanistan war. That totals just over 28,000 people. You would have, putting all of those together, you would have to multiply that by greater than two, more than two, to achieve the amount of people who have died in the past six weeks in the United States of America, 60,000, almost 62,000 estimated today. Um, America's deaths are one third of the world's deaths. And what's fascinating is New York, just New York City is one third of America's deaths. So to put that in context, you know, think of that, of those, uh, you know, we've lost now uh, about 22,000 people just in New York alone. So we're not up to all that number of 28,000 yet, but we'll hit it for certain. So I think that gives you a context of the worst of times. Now, a little story about the best of times is this has not broken the spirit of this city. Um, I love New York City. I, 
it's an amazing place. Nothing matches its energy, even when its streets are empty. But at seven o'clock every night, people all across the city open their windows and we have a whistle, we have a big pot, we bang. People clap. If they have a trumpet, they blow it. If they have a drum, they beat it, if whatever. We've had opera singers, you know, singing arias. Um, and it's all as a way to say thank you to the amazing men and women who are working on the front lines here, whether they be ambulance drivers, nurses, janitors and hospital doctors, all of the people who are keeping the city together um, during this in incredible time that there is nothing to compare to in American history. Um, and uh, every night it gets a little louder. And I have to tell you, I cannot help but every night cry when I am listening to it because it is such an outpouring of human passion and love and support and for thanks to the people who are risking their lives for everyone else's. And uh, it's the best of times uh, when you see things like that. So I, I hope, I didn't mean to paint too bleak a picture, but I think we can't be Pollyannish with the numbers that we're facing and what people are dealing with and wrestling with. Um, there, there's no one living in New York City who does not know someone who has died I have watched body bags come out of buildings across the street, you know, into ambulances. It's, uh, it is touching everywhere and uh, everyone. Uh, John is sharing those reflections with us. Um, that mix of um, the horror and tragedy so close to home, but tempered with that you know, we see it on the news here, um, but to get some first-hand account of what that 7 p.m. celebration uh, and expression of solidarity looks like, that, that, that's really great to hear about. And John, if you don't mind, I'm just gonna quickly share um, this photo you sent through the other day, just to show that what, what, what the new normal looks like. There's John, where are you, John? I'll let <laughs> That's uh... The Brooklyn Bridge there, uh, looking back towards downtown Manhattan, you can see the Freedom Tower just to the left of the bridge. Um, the uh, Blue Angels had just flown overhead and sadly I was not, my reflexes weren't good enough to grab my camera in time to catch them, but uh, I was able to at least take this picture. Um, the Brooklyn Bridge finished in 1870, right after the Civil War. And a humbling fact is to think that that, what you're looking at there, was the tallest structure in the Western Hemisphere for about 40 years until the Woolworth Tower was built and went higher then. Yep, and um, I remember my first day in New York walking across the, uh, the bridge thing with Australian friends in Brooklyn and that, that was my, my first trip into Manhattan was uh, on foot um, <laughs> over that bridge, so very, especially poignant well done um that's a we, great way to come into the city was uh, it wasn't quite as nice a day as you had uh yesterday um but anyway hey um look i do want to as, as dire as things are and certainly have been in new york i i wonder if we could also just zoom away from the city for a moment and john is there a sense that like the wave has crested in new york um, we are, we might be on the downslope there, still at a very high yeah. level, of course, but, but, but perhaps yet to peak elsewhere. Do you have a, do you have a sense of that, John? Yeah, I think very clearly, uh, you know, look, everybody who lives here can tell you day by day, the death count, um, uh, the worst death, official death count, uh, was the beginning of April. The peak for New York city was 799 dead in one day. Um, today we are down to 330, uh, died today. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's a significant, still a, an ugly number, uh, but far less from the, you know, approximately 800 people who were dying at the beginning of April every day. So, um, we are clearly, uh, social distancing has been working. 
uh, it has been a huge relief to the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, such a relief that, you know, the, the president and the military came and they brought the ship, the, the, the ship, the USS Hope. Um, you know, the hospital ship was here in New York Harbor um, in the Hudson River for about four weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they helped with treatments. But essentially now they, uh, you know, the, the numbers have been able to get within the parameters of what the hospital system in New York can handle um, and uh, can stay on top of the emergency situation. And so uh, this week, the, the ship uh, returned to its home port in Newport News to potentially be ready to use somewhere else. Um, now, clearly, uh, New York was sort of the first and hardest hit, but uh, this is peaking in other places. So it's Washington, I'm not sure has hit its Washington DC. I'm not sure if it has hit its peak yet. Um, much of the center of the country um, is still peaking. Um, California has had very good results, uh, but there are many places in the country that have not completely peaked yet. And so uh, we're not through this yet. Uh, and as I say, New York's numbers, even though they're far better, 330, still a very tough number to take every day. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, um, and John, just want to talk about your role leading the AAA under these circumstances. Um, the AAA, my sense of it at least, is it's, it's long been a focal point for the expatriate community in New York City, but the country more broadly. Um, an awful lot of contact with Australian expatriates there um, that you, you'd have through the, uh, the leadership of AAA. Just wondering if you could talk about your sense of how the expatriate community is doing. And indeed, you know, this part of the AAA, the American Australia Business Council, you know, how Australians who are there largely for business and their careers, how they're faring through this, your sense of that? Oh, yeah, no, that's great. I, first, I want to hats off to my team. It's a small team of uh, nine people, but uh, doing a mighty job. And uh, They've been fantastic through all of this. Um, you know, AAA started this year, you know, back when the disaster of the day was the fires in Australia. Right. And we turned all of our fundraising efforts from the beginning of the year uh, in January and February and dedicated all of our resources, raised, taking, raised, taking no overhead. We sent $2.2 million U.S. to Australia for fire relief. Um, and uh, it was a wonderful thing. And so that was a great beginning to the year, and it was a great example of just how important our mateship is between our two great countries. Um, And then we were walloped with uh, this, uh, you know, right after that in February and and came right into it. Uh, We've been working from home since March, and uh, we had pioneered that with demo working from home a little bit in February on Fridays to test everything and the technology get lined up. But our team has really shifted powerfully and been able to, uh, to use this technologies, uh, Zoom and WebEx and, and uh, BlueJeans and a couple others, um, you know, really effectively. And so we've, we've hosted some E3 visa uh, important information that's on our website. Uh, that uh, people can go online and watch and get a lot of questions answered and, or you can read. There's also uh, some memos posted about the E3 issues and others I know a lot of listeners might be, have a lot of concerns about. Um, but we've also been doing some very interesting business discussions. Uh, former Ambassador Joe Hockey uh, did a great interview with uh, Mick Mulvaney, yep. uh, former White House Chief of Staff, uh, Director of OMB, and now tackling the Northern Ireland uh, and Irish situation uh, with uh, everything that's going on there with Brexit. Um, uh, But also uh, I was able to interview uh, a great new Australian ambassador to the United States, Arthur Sinodinos. We had a great hour interview and he was phenomenal and what a great guy he is. So next week we're starting a program called Business Resilience. Uh, Nick Stone is owner of Bluestone coffee shops here in the U.S. Yep. Um, will be one of our first people interviewed. Uh, and so uh, a lot will be happening. But let me just so let me just give you some examples of some of the amazing things that uh, our uh, the AAA family is doing out there. Um, 
let's start with Nick Stone. I mean, he is, he's got a program called uh, Shout a Coffee. Uh, you know, Americans don't know what Shout is, so we have to kind of, you know, it has to be explained. But what he's doing is people donate a coffee when they buy a coffee. And then Nick will donate three times that amount of coffee to hospitals and healthcare workers. Oh, wow. That's great. And so he's getting, you know, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things that shocked me living here in New York City, you know, we could go through any crisis, but you never expect that they would close the Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and they've closed all the Dunkin' Donuts. So, like, I'm, I'm like, we're all like, how are we going to get through this without sugar and caffeine? You know, my God. Um, thank God Nick Stone has ridden to the rescue and uh, saved us with, uh, with some caffeine, a little bit of sugar. Ruby's Cafe, run by an Australian here, has a program called Empty Your Purse, Feed a Nurse. So you come in, you make a donation, they deliver a lunch to a hospital that a nurse or emergency worker can use. The, the White Hotel, run by an Australian here in New York, they're giving free rooms to doctors, to nurses, to you know interns who don't want to go home and infect their families, which has been a big problem. And so they can stay for free at hotel rooms that the White Hotel has. So it's, it's two great examples of Aussies stepping up, you know, in, in an amazing way here in the city. Uh, the, the fashion, you know, and it's not just, you know, um, what you think. I mean, even the fashion industry is stepping up. Uh, Scanlon Theodore has shifted their entire production around the world to creating masks and gowns for emergency medical workers. Wow. And so, you know, just incredible things going on, Simon, that are so exciting that, you know, just like I say, we were very proud to step up and help with the fires that were devastating so much and the sad stories we all remember um, from last year's fire season. And please God, don't let it be another one like that this year. But, you know, it just as, here we are facing, clearly the U.S. is facing the brunt of this. Uh, Aussies are jumping to the fore and stepping forward and really making things better. And uh, it's fantastic. And we have a lot. I can talk more about the business things, I think, as we go on through the program. Sure. Um, and again, just a shout out for, uh, for Bluestone. <laughs> um, um, I remember, John, one of your parting observations about Canberra is that, um, I remember you saying to me once, you know, you've really kind of got to go out of your way to find a bad cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, you do. And whereas you only have to throw a rock to hit a bad cup of coffee in the U.S. So, so Australia, thank, thank, thank God Australians are saving us. Are bringing good coffee to, um, to, to particularly to big, big places in the U.S., um, real market opportunity there. And it's funny uh, how many Australian expatriates or tourists find their ways to those places when you're in Washington or New York. It's, um, and there's one set up not far from the embassy in, in Washington too, by the way. Um, anyway. Oh, they're all over now. He's in Philly. He's, he's, he's branching out all over the country. Thank God. That's terrific. Oh, I, you know, I forgot one of the coolest things I saw was in Times Square, you know how they have all of those gazillion, uh, you know, electronic billboards, you know, every square inch of Times Square is lit up. And I thought the coolest thing I ever saw was there's an Australian artist named Gemma O'Brien, and she designed this um, thank you healthcare workers, thank you all workers um, video uh, screen that they put up on every sign in Times Square. And it was so amazing to be able to see that, you know, that's just an example of, from the arts of how many people were touched and warmed by that beautiful, beautiful presentation. Hey, John, I might, I might, there's so many ways we could cut at this, but just in the interest of leaving time for some questions from the floor, as it were, I'm wondering if we might just, you mentioned um, the session you did with Joe, Hockey, uh, who was talking to um, uh, McMulvaney. You mentioned the fact you had a session with Arthur Sinodinus. I'm, I'm wondering if you could perhaps give us your, you know, as a former ambassador yourself, um, um, you'd understand this, but your sense of what's going on at government to government right now through the very deep and broad channels that exist up at that level 
the way the two countries are cooperating with respect to the pandemic that, you know, what your takeouts from those conversations with the current ambassador and a former ambassador uh, might be? Yep. Well, it's not just that, but it's, you know, and, and uh, Ambassador Sinodinos is doing a fantastic job in Washington now too, just like Joe had done before him. And, uh, um, it, you know, as in many cases, uh, Australia pioneers great solutions um, that the United States can learn from. Uh, you know, the secret ballot, which we all take for granted in the U.S. now, was brought to us thanks and uh, courteous, uh, cur courtesy of Australia. Yeah. Uh, we, we got that idea from Australia. Um, and I could go on and on with that. But, you know, I think, look, one of the things we talked about with Mick Mulvaney is – Australia has handled the relief program to workers better than the United States. Um, the job keeper approach is far superior in my humble opinion. And I, everybody I've talked with here in the U S agrees to what we're doing because it's preserving the job. And so however long we're in this shutdown, when people come back, they'll have a job. Well, that is not the case in the United States. We don't have a job keeper program like the Morrison government has created. And, you know, we haven't organized a government that has a, you know, forget party, just have a pro-government response. You know, as, as God bless Prime, Prime Minister Morrison jumped in and created, uh, you know, a cabinet that included labor and liberal together to tackle this crisis. Um, we haven't done that. Um, so there's things we could learn and do better from Australia. And, you know, our unemployment program system doesn't guarantee a job. And when we go back to work, you know, what we're worried about now, 24 million Americans unemployed or on, on, on the, our unemployment program, probably a significant portion of those, their job is going to have evaporated. Right. And the, the economy is going to shift in major ways that we're only beginning to understand, uh, you know, whether restaurants survive and come back and how, I'm not sure. Uh, how Broadway comes back, I'm not sure. Movie theaters, I'm not sure. I, you know, I don't know how all this is going to work until we have a vaccine. Um, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, there'll be, there'll be winners, there's going to be losers. Amazon is growing gangbusters. I mean, you know, everything is being delivered to people's homes. Now. Um, you know, uh, I'm cooking half the meal. Curtis is cooking half the meals. I, you know, I'm, I'm learning, reminding myself how to cook again. It's great. Uh, but normally we'd go out probably five nights a week. Yeah, right. And so, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to go back to a restaurant, you know, next month or, you know, so... So we'll see how this plays out. But I think, you know, there's things, I think the JobKeeper approach uh, that Australia implemented. But the other things that are working that are great, that Ambassador Sinodinos has been driving and, and the, the Austrade and mm -hmm. uh, the, the ministers in Australia and, the, and secretaries here in the government, they've been doing a great job linking up businesses together on task forces. And there's some really amazing things going on that are, are looking at uh, ResMed, um, you know, a great Aussie company. Um, I'm a user of their product. Uh, it's fantastic. It changed my life. Um, has been, they've got a $32 million contract by the U.S. to produce essentially uh, almost a ventilator. It's not a true ventilator, but it can be used in many situations to improve blood oxygenation um, in patients. Um, and the beauty of the resume system is all linked through the cloud so they can monitor and check yep. how things are going and how the fastness of the breath and things. And so um, one of the biggest challenges, you know, people are having is they often don't get to the hospital until it's too late. Yeah. And they wait too long to get on a ventilator. So the ResMed system could be an in-between. And so that's a great example. Um, CSL is working on a a unified Australia-US plasma project. Um, it's got a cool name. I can't remember what the heck it is, but it's, uh, you know, it's to isolate the blood plasma that can be used to treat people who have severe symptoms because the plasma gives them the antibodies to be able to fight the virus. 
And so CSL is leading that effort. Uh, Vaxis, you know, looking ahead to when we do have a vaccine, you know, a lot of people are terrified of needles. And Vaxis has invented a patch that you put on that, you know, gives you the vaccine through the patch versus the needle. And it's a much easier way to get over a broader transmission, you know, because this happens, we're going to need 330 million people are going to need vaccines. And so delivery is very important. So, you know, Vaxis is stepping up on that. So, and, and they're partnering with U.S. companies. So there's amazing coordination going on in the business space. Um, and, and then finally, the philanthropic space. I mean, you know, you look at Anthony Pratt. I mean, he has taken a million dollars. Doherty Labs uh, was one of the first to get involved with sort of what treatments, you know, back when this first started, what will work. And they've been going through partnering with U.S. research institutions, looking at HIV and AIDS drugs, which are antiviral, yep. and seeing if any of them would have significant impact in being able to improve the treatment. And Anthony, thank God, has given them the money uh, as a donation to allow them to expedite that project. And, you know, fingers crossed, that may have a huge breakthrough. And so, you know, as we look at this, the things both our governments are trying to solve, there's sort of, there's, there's really four key challenges. First, we've got to get masks. And I'm not talking about the silly masks that people are making. We've, we've got to get enough N95 masks for 330 million people to wear on a regular basis so we can get our butts back to work um, and, and to, you know, manage things. And, you know, we ought to quit kidding ourselves that you can use a T-shirt. Uh, you know, we've, we've got to we've got to up the bar and we can't just say, well, now that health workers have N95 masks, we're done. We need to have everybody to have N95 masks. So we've got to up the mask game and we're doing that together. Um, we've got to up the treatment game. So we've got to find drugs that will whack this in people who caught it and prevent them from dying. We've got to up the vaccine game because. A lot of the people aren't going to relax and start being normal until there is a vaccine. And then finally, we've got to build a healthcare infrastructure right. that, again, the United States could learn a huge amount from, from Australia because you do it better than us. You have a healthcare structure that has responded to this, that has handled the load, that has stepped up in the crisis. You know, look, I had pneumonia when I was in Australia and, and proserpine and was at a great hospital over the Easter weekend once. God bless the women quilters of Proserpine. I had the most beautiful handmade quilt on my bed in the hospital. But, you know, boy, they put me back together in 48 hours. I don't know if that's because they just didn't want a U.S. ambassador dying in their ward, but they, uh, they got me out of there quick. But I was, I was back in business right away. And, you know, so I saw the healthcare system in Australia front, personal, and close. And, it's outstanding. And um, the United States could learn a lot. We, we do it well, but, you know, as is proof in New York City right now, we were overwhelmed. And uh, we need to be ready for this because this may not be the last time. It may not be. It may not be. That's the... Um, look, so, sorry, that was a long, long answer, Simon. And um, look, that's great. Um, hey, John, I've, I've got to ask you about this, though. Um, um, before we get into some questions from the floor that I'm just sort of part of my gaze as I just uh, peruse those. But, but John, um, with your long history of public service, and this is where I want to touch on your role at, at um, Office of Personnel Management, um, quite simply, you have expert knowledge of the, of the, of the organisation of the US government. That's what that job's about. You, you, you know what the org chart looks like, probably better than anyone that I've ever spoken to um, and, 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 and understand the resources available to the executive branch to respond to, to national crises and emergencies. And look, as well, we all know, there's been a ton of criticism of the way the federal government has responded to this, but I'm wondering if I could ask you to put your old OPM hat on and share, share some reflections on what we're going through now that are informed by your experience running HR essentially for the American government. Yeah, well, Simon, it's an interesting story I have for that. Um, 
you know, and look, first, before we go there, let me just say, I mean, look, crises are tough. And there's no question this is a crisis. This is an unprecedented crisis that not just the United States, but every country in the world's facing. And, uh, you know, stepping up and beating it is, is tough. So I, I don't want to second guess the people who are wrestling with it now. But um, uh, I, I'm, uh, I started in the job. So the president sworn in January 2009, right? And he nominates people. Well, it takes a while for you to get your background investigation, your security clearance. And if you're Senate confirmed, then you have to submit a lot of questions and paperwork. And then you have to go have hearings in the Senate, et cetera. So it was very fast to get all of that done by April. But sort of so I was able to be sworn in in April as the director of Office of Personnel Management. It may have been the first week. If it wasn't the first, it was the second. So the first 10 days on the job, I get a call uh, about four o'clock in the afternoon at my desk from a phone that comes from the White House and pick it up and they say, get your butt over to the situation room at five o'clock. Click, you know, okay. So where's the situation room? <laughs> first question. So I, I learned, I get over to... So OPM is not far. I, you know, run the blocks to get to the White House, get in the White House, get to the Situation Room. I'm sitting there with all the rest of the cabinet. And H1N1 has just started. And Tom Ferdan, the doctor who's head of CDC at the time, and Kathleen Sebelius, who's head of HHS, they did this presentation in the Situation Room. And they had this amazing video sort of set up. And they looked at the Spanish flu in 1917, 1918, and, or 1918, and they played out like a scenario of the world turning and the speed with which the Spanish flu circled the globe. And next to it was this little digital bar, like, you know, they use on the budget deficit is now $20 trillion um, that would click about the number of people who had died as this circled the globe. Well, it took, I think it was like, like nine months or something. It was some long period of time because of travel and et cetera at the time to get all the way around the globe. And, but you saw the death count. And then they said this H1N1 thing is out. And it is very close in its genetic structure to the Spanish flu. And with one or two mutations in the genetic code and this virus is mutating at the rate of like, you know, three times an hour um, or a minute, I forget what it was, but they played out what could happen if, if it mutates to become like the Spanish flu, they played the scenario and it goes around the globe in three hours and the death toll is in millions. And all I could remember was I was sitting there and I realized my mouth is hanging up. And, uh, um, all of a sudden, uh, I thought, you know, well, you can't look like, uh, you know, you, you know, if you're a neophyte at this, even though you are, you're the first time you're, I look around the room and every other cabinet secretary in the room, I'm, I'm not a cabinet secretary level, but the other, all the cabinets there and all their mouths are hanging open. Ray LaHood, Hillary Clinton, everybody's just looking at the screen and thinking, oh my God. And so we started assigning out tasks, what needed to be done, how we needed to respond to this, et cetera. Well, the next morning, the president organized a cabinet meeting in this cabinet room at the White House. And I was fortunate to go to that. And it's my first meeting, attending a cabinet meeting. And the uh, president walks in, he sits down, he says, I have two things we need to discuss, and then we'll throw it open to others. But first is we have a treatment uh, an antiviral that we believe will be effective against H1N1, and we had X amount, and uh, wasn't that much. Certainly not enough to treat Americans. Um, but he said, you know, the virus is now breaking out in Mexico, and uh, Mexico has asked us for Y amount. Well, Y amount was three times X. You know, I don't want to, don't remember the exact numbers. I don't want to confuse things, but it was Mexico is asking for a lot more than we even had. 
yeah. three times more than what we what we possessed. And uh, so the president said, we need to decide how much can we quickly get to them to help and what can we do? Second question is, how fast can we get a vaccine? And let's talk about timelines and what we need to do and how we need to reshape things and where we can get help from the private sector, et cetera. And uh, so that, then the cabinet meeting revolved around that. And then the, as the cabinet meeting went on, it, more of the discussion went towards um, uh, how do we organize to face the challenges that could come? In other words, when do we close schools? How do we close schools? How do we identify emergency personnel? Who continues to work when others are going to have to go home? Um, you know, et cetera. So jobs were parsed out and assigned. You know, we need to talk with the governors. We've got to get on. We have to engage the mayors. We have to involve on these decisions. And so, you know, federalism kicked in. And so the president went around and he, you know, assigned out. It, and we quickly decided that, you know, we could immediately send about a third of what the U.S. stockpile of this yeah. went to Mexico to help them in their frontline issue. Um, you know, and, and I think it was a bold decision the president made. We've got to step up and help other countries. We have to, especially neighbors. Um, uh, you know, the rest of it played out. Uh, he, he, you know, we he organized as we talked about the vaccine and he ended up pointing about four people and said, okay, the four of you are, report back you know, in 48 hours on the game plan for how we're standing up a vaccine. Pointed to the other six on, okay, you begin the outreach to governors, mayors, and let's go. And bam, you know, meeting's over. So it was a, it, it was a quick, you know, I guess trial by fire to be like 10 days into the job and thrown into this. But, uh, you, you know, it was a great example. And, and the administration faced three of these, you know, the First, that was the beginning at H1N1. So we learned trial under fire. Zika came along. I don't know if you remember Zika, but that was a big crisis as well. But even bigger in terms of death rate was Ebola. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the death rate of that was astounding in Africa. And we realized if we can't contain this and eliminate it in Africa, and this gets around the world and escapes, it's going to be a, an unmitigated disaster. And so here's a case of the Australia stepping forward with the United States. Um, Australia is one of the first countries that stepped forward. Uh, you know, Jeff Bleich and uh, yeah. at the time, you know, helped put this together. Um, the U.S. organized 10,000 healthcare workers to go to, to Africa to help contain the Ebola right at the outbreak and led an international coalition. And it was America and Australia together leading that coalition to get immediate response. And I remember, uh, you know, Australia's response was, was immediate ahead of everybody else and set the bar. And, and, you know, but that ended up producing, you know, immediate responses, identification, treatment centers, research. And, you know, it was amazing. Um, uh, you know, we were lucky. We, we, we had a vaccine on H1N1 by December. Uh, you know, so if you go from April, it took from April to December to get a vaccine in quantities that you could distribute it. We prioritized the amount of Americans that needed it first. And by the beginning of December, we were able to achieve for every, those who needed it. And by the end of December, we had enough supply to be able to give it to every American who wanted it. Um, on Ebola, uh, in November, when this kicked off, there was over 2,000 cases. By February, uh, it was down to 300. And so it, you could see that international response it had an amazing impact. And, you know, so look, President Obama was a fantastic leader. Uh, the administration was great, um, but never perfect. And, you know, there were balls dropped there, just like there may be balls dropped today. But you know, we've got to keep our eyes focused on those four things that I talked about, you know, masks, treatment, vaccine, hospital, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So if we can deliver those four things, we'll get the economy back up and running. We'll protect lives and we'll have a bright future. But we've got to keep laser focus on those four things. And we can't just stop because we, okay, masks are done because healthcare workers got, no, 
I want every American to have a supply of N95 masks. I want every American to have access to this. I, you know, set the bar where it needs to be set. Don't set bars too low. And that's the only way to meet a crisis. Americans like to be stretched. We like to be given a wall that no one else can get over. We'll find a way to get over. And if we can't, we'll knock the gosh darn wall down. You know, so, you know, don't be afraid to demand great things of Americans. We will deliver. Well said, John. Um, Excuse me if we just jump topics a little. What I'd like to do. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Our remaining time. Um, get to some questions that have come up from the floor. Um, and, and John, look, I can't help but um, ask about the way this is playing into U.S. domestic politics. It's sort of a question that, you know, here at the U.S. Study Center, you know, we're being asked every hour. Um, and, and that is, how is this, you know, I tell you, my sense is that it has fundamentally transformed the terms under which Trump's re-election, and, and indeed the entire election is, Typically, a, a re-election of an American president is about his economic management. Um, and I just wonder, your sense of, my sense is that it's changed now to be his handling of this crisis will be the, the single biggest factor in, in whether he's re-elected or not. I'm wondering, you know, could you weigh in your sense of how this is shaping or perhaps re- reshaping American domestic politics at the moment? And that comes from Amy Linden, who works at Westpac. Okay, that's a great question, Amy. I, uh, you know, look, uh, you're right, Simon, the dynamic has been shifted on the election. Uh, but I think it, it, you need to, there's a couple points to make. First, uh, three months in America today is an eternity in electoral politics. So anybody who tells you what's going to happen next November, uh, you know, put it in next to a grain of salt and you'll be pretty much close. Um, but let me give you, I think things have changed since this has happened. Um, I think before this, it would have been very difficult, uh, to, uh, uh, to have a democratic candidate have a shot at, at, uh, uh, limiting president Trump to his first term. I think he would have, uh, before this, if you'd taken December's numbers, uh, you know, his odds of reelection would have been very good. Um, I think now you'd ask sort of what's the main message going to be for each side. I think from President Trump's side, he's going to run on a simple message, which is, okay, we got knocked off balance by a virus. I didn't invent it. I didn't make it. I didn't bring it here, but it's here. It's destroyed and wrecked the economy. I'm your best bet at putting the economy back together again, and I can do it better than anybody else give me a second term, I'll take us back to where we were in December. So that's President Trump's campaign. Um, Joe Biden's campaign is building on exactly what you said is, look, um, we have treated government as the enemy for too long uh, and it has gotten too weak because of that. And we need to have professional management that understand how government needs to be run and this crisis isn't over. Uh, remember the Spanish flu hit in the spring of 18, but came back in the fall of 18 and was even more deadly and worse. Right. And more people died, died in the autumn than died in the northern spring. Um, so people are watching Australia very closely for that very reason. We don't know, is, is this gonna, you know, keeping in mind there's a virus, it's mutating daily. What's it going to be come November? What's it going to be come December? Is it going to be more dead? Are we going to be in more trouble? Um, Biden is going to run on, if, if that's what you're afraid of, I'm your man. I can manage this government. Uh, I know how to do it. And I can make sure that we can, we can have a response that will solve this problem. So, you know, I think that's going to be the two core messages that I see the two camps uh, sort of gelling around. Um, I think some interesting data point, uh, and you, you can, I know you'll look at this in much more detail, but essentially there's four key states to watch. Um, the blue wall, of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. If the Democrats can't take those back, there's no way they win. 
So they must take at least two, if not all three of those states to win. And then Florida is a big player. You know, Florida is one of these states that 1% either direction and it all shifts. So 1% it goes Democrat, 1% goes Republican. Um, but Florida is so big that whatever way it shifts could determine the presidency. Right. So in the past, you look at what's happened over the past eight weeks. Uh, you know, two months ago, um, Trump was ahead in, I think, three out of four of those key states. Right now, Biden is ahead in all four, including Florida. And the most interesting stat to remember in Florida is Biden is ahead against the president in Florida amongst people over 65 by a very significant margin. And that population in the last election broke heavily for the president. And in this period of time, that population is not judging favorably how the president has managed this crisis so far. And, and so there's been a significant shift of over 65 voters in Florida towards the Democrats. So we'll see. It's way too early to predict. Uh, but uh, what I probably would have told you in December is uh, less than a 50% chance for the Democrats. It's now probably a six, you know, between 55 and 60, you know, percent chance for the Democrats. So it's, it's moving, but it's a long, November's a long way away. And that's my assessment. Uh, you know, no, that's the fair. voters, the voters will get to tell us soon enough. They will. They, they will. Um, look, just a few more questions in the in the time we've got remaining, John, from that have come up from people who have registered for the seminar. Um, there's some great questions here. Um, um, John, you were a former ambassador. Um, I've got I've got to ask you this question because it's something we're struggling with. Well, I wouldn't say struggling with. We're, we're asking ourselves very robust dialogue at the U.S. Study Center on this, and that is the impact of COVID-19 on American prestige around the world. Um, already, you know, the members of the, pre the Australian press corps in Washington, you're starting to get these think pieces coming back home to Australian eyeballs about how could this have happened to the greatest country in the world, the strongest, richest, you know, this sense that this signals a deeper crisis, perhaps in real terms, but certainly in, in prestige terms for the United States. Your reflections on that as a, as a former representative of the United States here in Australia? Look, America first cannot be America alone. Um, and, you know, I think the president's message was carrying a legitimate concern many Americans had that, you know, being policemen of the world is hard. Uh, you know, running everywhere and trying to put out every fire is tough. And in a, especially in a fair, in a trading situation where your leading economic competitor is not playing by the rules. Uh, and, and so China's essentially eating our lunch by breaking the rules. Um, and so President Trump came in and, and said, look, we got it. We have to change that dynamic. It's, it's not fair that NATO members don't pay their fair share. Australia can cough up 2% of GDP. Why the heck can't? you know, German. Um, so these are fair points the president made uh, that, you know, he wanted to rebalance some of those things that had gotten out of whack. But a crisis like this, you know, can't be one where America is sucking up N95 masks and, you know, at the expense of other countries. We, we can't you know, we're all, we've all got to be in this together. And America has to take a leadership role, um, much just like I described to you about the, you know, giving a third of the nation's stockpile of antiviral at the beginning of this was a very politically risky thing to do for President Obama. But he also recognized we're in this together. And Mexico is going through the crisis right now, and it hasn't hit here yet. And right. we can we can get more. And by God, we should step up and help them. Right. Well, the EU, and like we did in Ebola, 
the U.S. should be playing a bigger role on the international stage, not just concerned about our New York. We should, our federal system should be a source of strength where governors, mayors, and the federal government work together to accomplish the four objectives I talked about and not sort of finger pointing and not, okay, you all are stuck with this and I'm stuck with this, you know, and then you countries, you know, the U.S. should define the path forward of how those four goals are accomplished and share the burden around the world, but provide the leadership amongst our many allies and friends and organize the world so that we can respond to this thing quicker, more faster and efficiently than we're doing right now. And I think what is going to hurt American prestige is the fact that we have not led that organizational effort as we have in the past. You know, we, we rebuilt Europe at great expense after essentially knocking a lot of it down in World War II. Um, the Marshall Plan was a bold effort uh, that a Republican came forward, uh, President Eisenhower, to, to lead, and, uh, and it made the difference, and it brought Germany into the great democratic country it is today. Japan, our, our former enemy, now a great ally and a great uh, economic leader, a democratic country. So our leadership can change things for the better, and it can be in a way that America can still you know, we can, we can have rules, we can have fairness, and we can have our allies do their part. But we also have great skill and organization to bring to the bear. And we are doing it. We need to do it. We yeah. should do it better. Um, I want to thank Judith Betts from the University of Technology, Sydney, for that last question. Um, um, John, you, you mentioned state governors. And since you're there in New York, I've got to ask you this question that comes from um, Stephen Loosley, um, um, who's a former Australian senator, but um, affiliated, a, a senior fellow at the U.S. Study Center. And of course, he asks about Governor Cuomo. Um, uh, what a great, he's a great guy. I, you know, I, I was, before I was in the Obama administration, I was, when I was at the Interior Department, I was in the Clinton administration. And Andrew was a cabinet secretary then, and hard charging, ambitious, uh, but brilliant. And, uh, and he has, this crisis has shown his great leadership. His, his father was one of the great leaders in American That's right. history. And uh, what a wonderful man. I remember reading his book in college and was so inspired by him. One of the, he was one of the people who sort of led me into being involved in, in political life and government was that the good that can be done by being involved in public service. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so Mario Cuomo, his dad, inspired Andrew with that and sort of put it in his bloodstream. And, and boy, he has done a fantastic job through this crisis. Um, even New Yorkers, who, you know, New Yorkers are a fickle bunch. Uh, you know, New Yorkers uh, are tough on our politicians and, and quick to criticize, let's put it that way, um, and pretty bluntly <laughs> with colorful language. Uh, you know, but I don't know a New Yorker right now who wouldn't tip their hat and say, Good job, Andrew. Um, you've really stepped up on this and you've done a great job. So, look, I think uh, he will be a president of the United States someday. Wow. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think he uh, very wisely said, you know, look, Biden deserves this run and, and by God, I'm going to help him. So he's, he's back in the vice president supporting Vice President Biden. And, uh, but I think. Look to him to be the opening address of the Democratic Convention. Be my prediction, Stephen. That's a and look cool. I like you know. Yep. Uh, look to him to come out of this as a, as a major candidate for uh, a future uh, Democratic president. And and well done mentioning his father, John. Um, I very quickly I I lived through a minor disaster when I lived in Rochester, New York, where the when I first got to the US, I was studying up there in the city, an ice storm. And I remember distinctly the governor, Mario Cuomo, coming to Rochester and just saying, look, don't worry, Albany's got your back. We're going to spend, this is what we do. Uh, we, will, we will spend what it takes to get the city back up on its feet. And because that's what we do. That's what, and it was just like, wow. <laughs> um, I, remember, I remember it to this day. Uh, uh, 
clear what 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 leadership in a crisis looked like. Um, and and I'd forgotten, uh, John. That's right. That Andrew had been a cabinet secretary in the. Um, yeah. Thank you for reminding us all about that too. Um, hey, yeah. look, we're going to have to do this again because we're out of time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's an hour, and it goes fast. But John, I'm well, my I, my ibuprofen held up for the whole hour. So that's pretty good. Um, there are so many great questions here, John, and and you're such a great person to, given the the hats you've worn in the past, but where you sit now. There are questions that span that I haven't been able to ask that span this entire sort of, I think, things that are well within your reach, so to speak. And, and look, there is a formal connection between the United States Study Center and the America Australia Association. Um, Absolutely. Um, it, it, the, 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 the odd thing, it, it takes a crisis like this for us to do this, something we should have been doing over the years. And indeed, we have plans to... Um, partner with you and your team there on some upcoming webinars. But John, I think you and I are going to have to get back on the, or if not us, but representatives of our organizations to continue. The happy, happy to, Simon. I think, look, we, we, you're doing a great job there in the study center. Gordon Flake out in Perth is doing a fantastic job. We're, we're all part of the American Australian Association family, if you will. And, uh, you know, God bless you all for what you're doing. And, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in today and God bless Australia for helping the United States in this difficult time and working with us so closely to get us, us and the world through this crisis. And uh, my hat's off to each of you and I hope all of you stay healthy and safe and all my love to all my friends back in Australia. That's so well said, John. Um, and we'd expect nothing less. Thank you so much for your graciousness and, and your wisdom. Uh, and your generosity of your time tonight there in New York. Um, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks to the team, both in New York, uh, who helped set this up, and, uh, of course, my team in Sydney. Thank you so much. And we'll see you again next week um, for two more United States Studies webinars. Please check the website for, <laughs> for, for those events. Um, they're coming up next week. But good morning to Australia. Good evening to the United States. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.